I'm David Bank, and from Impact Alpha, this is an Agents of Impact podcast. So every company we acquire, we look to train at least a thousand people a year. Um, we do that across ten companies, uh, train ten thousand people every year, and over a ten-year live fund, put a hundred thousand Americans in good first jobs. That's Daniel Pianco, managing director at Achieve Partners, a private equity manager in New York that is bridging the skills shortage at its portfolio companies with European-style apprenticeships. Daniel also hosts the Better Money, Better World podcast from the Impact Capital Managers. That's the association of market rate, or better yet, Impact Alpha fund managers. Daniel threw a few questions back at me, and we're releasing this podcast on both platforms. Let's jump right into our conversation. Welcome back, everybody, to the Agents of Impact podcast. We're here with Daniel Pianco, uh, founder and managing director of Achieve Partners. Hi, Daniel. Hi, David, and welcome to the Better Money, Better World podcast. We have David Bank, Editor-in-Chief of Impact Alpha, as our guest today. Great to be here, Daniel. We're going to do kind of a special double feature um, where uh, where I interview uh, you about Achieve and, and also about your podcast, and, and you throw some questions back to us, and we're going to put it out on both platforms. Sounds like a plan. So, Daniel, we've known each other for a while. I think you used to be actually University Venture, so I've been tracking you through a couple different uh, hats. And then another hat you wear is as a founder and early member of something called the Impact Capital Managers, um, which is a collection and network of impact capital managers that specifically are looking for the impact alpha and getting that edge in investing by optimizing on on impact as well. So let's get into that as well. But first, maybe just give us the basic thesis of of Achieve. Sure. Uh, Achieve Partners, we're investing in the future of earning and learning. And what that means for us is we uh, basically look to identify uh, skill gap areas where um, we have 100,000 or more unfilled jobs. And then we invest in companies and services companies in those areas. Uh, and then we build training programs. So every company we acquire, we look to train at least a thousand people a year. Um, we can do that across ten companies, uh, train ten thousand people every year, and over a ten-year live fund, put a hundred thousand Americans in good first jobs. And underlying this is the belief that um, you know everyone's kind of focusing right now on the Great uh, Resignation and and sort of you know these changes in workforce. And our fundamental realization was that. Um, people want to work. They just want to work in really good jobs. Um, and unfortunately, our education system doesn't train people for jobs in the way that it used to in terms of, you know, early stage in your career apprenticeships, uh, training programs. Um, and so we need to build them in a way that limited friction uh, between employers and students and educational institutions. Kind of everything, everything old is new again. This is apprenticeships, essentially. And Effectively, we're creating European-style apprenticeships in the United States with private pay models, where, where the employer is paying for them. The employer is paying for them so that the students or the trainees can get a step up in their career without incurring a lot of student debt or whatnot. You were telling me it's sort of an interesting evolution. You know, first of all, it was um, the the first model was let the well, the first model, I suppose, was was the apprenticeships. But once that fell apart, it was basically people were on their own to get themselves trained and and, and ready. The second was these kind of um, income share agreements, which became sort of popular for for a time. And you know, maybe you didn't have to put up the money up front and you'd pay it back over time once you got a good job and there's some appeal to those things. You're saying we've now evolved even beyond that, given the, the supply and demand in the labor market. Yeah, I mean, right now, um, we have large areas of the economy. There, there are 10 million unfilled jobs in the United States right now. We have a massive shortage of 
trained labor for the workforce. And you know, there's a lot of focus on sort of like the structural change for restaurant workers and you know, hotel workers and things like that. Um, as a function of the pandemic. As a function of the pandemic, exactly. Yeah, but what we're not yeah. talking about is the fact that software is incredibly important to us and sort of uh, trained positions that we just don't have enough people to fill those roles. And you know, we've historically turned to our universities to uh, train people. Um, but unfortunately, our universities aren't really set up to train current technical skills. So if you, you know, there are 300,000 unfilled jobs in Salesforce administration right now. And, uh, you know, there isn't a single college or university in the country that trains people on Salesforce. Um, and so how do you get that training? You know, how many college seniors wake up or even, you know, 25-year-olds wake up and say, hey, I, I really want to become a Salesforce administrator. Um, and so how do you kind of find those people, identify them, and give them a clear pathway to get those jobs. And those jobs pay $100,000, $200,000 a year. So they're, they're not just uh, a lot of them, but they, they pay really well. And it's worth the while of your portfolio companies to, to, to foot the bill for the training, what, in return for having a, a stable workforce of their own? Yeah. When I graduated from college, I was lucky enough to get a job at Goldman Sachs. And, and my contract with Goldman Sachs was simple. The, I was a history major. Um, so I didn't know anything about finance and they ran me through three months of training. And at the end of those three months of training, they made me an investment banker and I got to fly around on private jets and help people take companies public and, and sell them, which, uh, is, is a different story. Um, and, uh, and that was an amazing experience. I had no business doing that job incidentally. Uh, but I, I made a commitment to Goldman that I'd stay for a two year period. And so it's not dissimilar from that. Most of the time what we do is we, uh, when we, we, we recruit people, think of it as like a two year training program. Um, you first run through sort of a boot camp like experience, 90, about three months generally, um, where you get up to speed on a specific, uh, you know, software package, uh, whether it's health, you know, Epic, the healthcare IT platform or Salesforce or cybersecurity platforms. Um, and then, uh, we staff you, uh, either on projects that the portfolio company is, is managing or at a client. Um, and you get real world experience and, and your commitment to us is that you'll work with us for two years. We'll continue training you as you evolve. Um, and after two years, you know, we encourage you to go work for the customer. So I'll give you a very simple example. This also helps the, the, the underlying business. So one of the companies that we appreciate you covering in, in impact alpha was when we acquired, uh, optimum healthcare IT, uh, -huh. uh they implement, uh, IT systems in hospitals. Uh, there are over 100,000 unfilled jobs uh, to, to, you know, if you think about it, when you go to a doctor right now, they spend all their time typing on their computer. Well, they're typing into a, a, a software package called Epic or Cerner, um, and Optimum Healthcare IT implements these systems uh, at hospitals. And so what we do is we're able to go to hospitals with a very unique value proposition. Not only will we implement your IT system, but at the end of the project, if there's a person who's working on the project who who you particularly like and is helpful and, and, and absolutely necessary to keeping the, 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 the system ongoing, you can hire that person at the end of the project. Um, and that's a very unique value proposition that helps uh, us, um, you know. You're saying come poach us. Come poach us, yeah. Most, most implementation firms, they say, you know, non-solicit, non-hire, non-compete, all this stuff. We say, yeah, please take them. You know, it's a great job. We'll train another one. We got we got lots of people who need jobs and lots of jobs to fill. So let's 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 uh, let's serve as a matching function. Isn't there something to be noted? I mean, I, you said everybody's talking about the great resignation and the skills shortage, and it's almost like commonplace now that that there's all these unfilled jobs and and whatnot. And a few years ago, we were talking about, you know, when we talked about the future of work, it was the exact opposite. The robots were coming. There were going to be no jobs. You know, it's like we were going to have no truck drivers, and now we can't find enough truck drivers. 
So I, I always tell people, think like a second century BC Egyptian. When the entire economy revolved around building pyramids for pharaohs and the entire ecosystem revolved around who the best stonemasons were, who was carving the best, there's a bunch of manual labor. And if you told people, you know, five, you know, 2000 years from now, uh, you would have machines that do 99% of the work. People would say, oh my God, what would you do in this new economy? Um, 65% of jobs today didn't exist 10 or 15 or 20 years ago. Uh, social media manager as a job title did not exist when I graduated from college. Social media didn't exist. And so if you look you know, five years forward, um, what we're seeing is a rapid revolutionary, probably the fastest shift in the underlying economy we've ever seen from sort of a uh, uh, to a digital economy, not just digital economy, but perhaps like a, a fully digital immersive metaverse type economy over a generation. Um, and, and so what is desperately needed is uh, people who can function in that world, who have the skills necessary to get good jobs. And I think a lot of the social, um, you know, social problems we have in our country are driven by the fact that people feel like those jobs are out of reach. You know, those jobs where you need a new set of skills that didn't exist 20, 30 years ago, uh, we can't get those jobs because there, there isn't the training program, there isn't a logical pathway to them. And so we're creating that pathway for, you know, people, basically high potential people who don't have social networks. Uh, into those good jobs. So just to be clear, you guys, Achieve Partners, raised $180 million earlier, or sorry, mi middle of last year, and um, uh, and you buy companies, and you are the private equity owner of these companies that you also help them set up, as you said, these apprenticeship programs. But you're actually, your investment is really in the company, and you're picking out companies, I assume, uh, off some chart of shows where the jobs of the future are going to be and the job shortages of the future. And you're going to have, a, in a sense, a, a, a pipeline of, of, of talent to fill these, this, this demand that, that you, you can see coming. Is that, is that the basic thesis? Yeah. Basically, we look for companies where uh, two, two key criteria. One, um, when you ask the CEO, what's the biggest problem you face? They say, I can't find enough trained people to do X. And, and that, you know, just a good proxy for what the New York Times is going to cover. Um, and then the second thing is kind of a leadership team that's really committed to education and training. And, you know, most companies say, oh, we can't afford to train anymore. You know, our margins are too thin. And, and what we look for are people who think it's really important to train the next generation. They just haven't figured out how. And then what we do is we teach them and we, we, what we the value add we bring is we help them turn their biggest negative and their biggest cost center into a big positive. And that's how you find the alpha in, in impact, which is a little a, a good bridge to the impact capital managers that we mentioned, the association of managers who formed to, in a sense, um, and, and this is actually an important point because um, in the early days, there was what was called, you know, the concessional world of impact investing, this, the below market rate world. And then there was what people were calling at the time, the market rate world. Um, and th this was supposed to be the more com commercial and sort of more grown up version of, of impact that was not, you know, sort of as much sort of in the philanthropy mode, but was really in the more of the private equity and, and venture mode of, of and making of good returns. And I think what the signal in advance of the impact capital manager was it's not just market rate, it's actually alpha. It's actually there's value in that impact thesis 
because as you said, you're going to identify a kind of a, a social need that's going to become a commercial need that's going to drive demand and drive revenues in some way, um, or a business model that can deliver this thing. And so there's what now? 50, 60, I think, members, right? 70 members managing 70 about members. $15 billion. Okay. And it's a, and it's a kind of a, a cohort, um, you know, that, that are all sort of now singing this tune that there's a, actually alpha in impact, which of course was very, uh, um, music to the ears of impact alpha. And we had a good, we had a good laugh back then of the, the, the alpha and impact being covered in impact alpha, um, a little self-referential, but the report that was put out at the time back in 2018 and, and sort of the thinking around it was very much aligned with where impact alpha was at, which was that there's, there's alpha and impact. Basically, the, the value of impact capital managers is we're a bunch of people who believe that by solving the world's greatest problems, we should make a ton of money. And, and that's really true, right? We need to convert our entire economy away from a fossil fuel-based economy to an electrified economy. There should be huge investment opportunities there. We want to convert our, our current workforce economy away from everybody swimming alone to a more apprenticeship, clear pathway approach to good jobs. You know, the, the, the people, there are a bunch of people investing in healthcare and real estate. You know, we want to create good, affordable housing. Well, that's a huge need. We should be making money off of affordable housing in, in a way that is consistent with low area median incomes and all that kind of stuff. So what Impact Capital manages is really group people who got together and said, we need to convince the world that not only can you have a great social return, but you can exceed your economic returns as well. And, and I think that's really uh, the goal of our group, which is to convert the dialogue away from concessionary capital towards uh, impact investing as a driver of, of alpha or increased re economic returns. Well, you know, we like that. And we also like what you called concessional and what now is being called catalytic capital. And we always try to be the, the Switzerland or the bridge um, to say that there's, you know, different people can play at different um, parts of the spectrum, as folks have called the spectrum of returns, and that there's a need for different kinds of capital. And in fact, we always say that the alpha can be collected in the form of impact as well. So there's, and in fact, I, I saw back in the report that you guys put out in 2018, there was lip service at least paid to that notion that there were um, investors who could put, um, put, put, and had the flexibility and the essentially the, the luxury to be able to put concessional capital to work, whether it's philanthropic money or just high net worth individual money that wants to look for an impact. As long as you're getting that impact, you know, you're the investor, you can take your returns however you like. So um, how do you, as you sort of try to be Switzerland, how do you sort of think about the names that we apply to those things? Like, should investing be purely market uh, uh, return oriented or how do we define investing then? Well, I know you uh, actually. Uh, I, we should put up in, in the in the post around this. I think you had a post in Impact Alpha several years ago on exactly this topic, and you argued, I think, that it was only investing if it was market rate. And I would say no. It's investing if you know what the the risk return impact profile is, and you're and you assign yourself, you know, what your return expectations are just like any investor does on in, in, you know a fixed income investor is a different than a venture investor is different than a private equity investor and an impact investor is just another flavor of that as long as you define what returns you're looking for and you do it in a rigorous and serious fashion you're not just giving money away for you know sort of to you know suit your own you know fancy or something but you're put, putting capital down on a serious thesis and, and measuring and uh, the returns I think is is investing and you know so we even go so far as you know some grants could even count as that but generally 
generally speaking, we think it's, you know, the capital has to get returned in some way, almost a little bit as a scorekeeping mechanism to see whether the thing is working, right? Um, so there's a sort of accountability set, a, a sense to the investing. Do you report differently uh, in Impact Alpha between those two types of investing? We try to hold both sides accountable to the other. So I would say that on the when people like yourselves and are claiming that there's an impact thesis that's driving outsized returns, we want to make sure that that impact thesis really exists and that that's really what's driving the returns. It's not something that's just kind of patched on on the back end to make it look good, right? So that's the accountability on that end. On the other side, if somebody's saying, oh, well, this is a catalytic investment where we're going to sort of crowd in commercial capital with our loan guarantee or our um, whatever the, the thesis might be, we want to make sure that that that's actually happening and that it's not just a sort of sloppy subsidy that's going to you know continue on in some way and and possibly even distort the market or certainly not you know necessarily um, advance the market to the point where you know the idea on, on all that as you well know is that there's markets that are at early stage need to get proven out need a track record once that happens you know the commercial capital will find it's not really as risky as they thought and they'll come in and then the catalytic capital can can go on to the next challenge is that really happening? So, so we try to, you know, try to sort of hold people to what they claim their thesis is, um, and and make sure that everybody knows, you know, what's what. Do, do you think it's happening? Like, is catalytic capital moving? You know, the, the, what you describe is sort of like this: just get my money back kind of thing. Is it moving to new areas on a regular basis? Well, here's my best example, and it happens to be, you know, just we just had it in the in the brief today, which was a large new funds moving into solar, essentially renewable energy financing in specifically low to moderate income neighborhoods, which need the financing to put solar panels up and retrofits and EV charging. And, and these are commercial funds. These are not concessional funds, but they're making a specific market-based decision to target low and moderate income neighborhoods because that's where the apartment buildings that need to be retrofitted is. That's where the utility and energy costs are so high and the savings are really valuable. This can all be financed over a 20-year power purchase agreement kind of thing and be a very stable source of income. And finally, after many years of sort of pioneers and indeed some foundation and other kind of concessional capital, we now seeing nine-figure you know, investments going in, specifically targeting low and moderate income neighborhoods for solar. So, you know, we, yes, I would say over time, we've seen several examples. Um, you know, the off-grid electricity market in Africa is another good example, went from sort of concessional to, um, to, to super commercial. Um, um, so, um, markets do move up with, you know, this kind of S curve people talk about where they start, you know, needing, needing subsidies and they get increasingly commercial and, um, and, and, and new investors come in. Um, now there's some cases where it doesn't work. So that may be your point. There's some cases where, you know, things get mired in, in, in sort of subsidy or, and there's some cases where they basically, you know, the numbers don't work out and you never will get out. You'll always need a permanent subsidy, probably, you know, super low, income housing, you know, affordable housing, you know, might need a, a, a Section 8 kind of government subsidy, you know, for essentially ever, um, just because of the income characteristics and the housing costs. My, my point is slightly different, which is I think it, it hurts the ability for impact investors who want returns to raise money from limited partners if other things are called impact, other things are called investing. Um, and so my point is more that we should just call it philanthropy or call it something else besides investing. But you're, because you're saying the impact term tarnishes the return expectations and scares investors away. Don't you think that's kind of gone away? I mean, that was a sort of two or three year ago thing, Daniel. And now that every financial institution is touting its ESG impact 
bona fides and can't get enough of this and all the funds are being raised against climate and inclusion and everything else isn't now impact the calling card isn't it isn't it isn't there a premium you know it's interesting i i i think it's actually not as evolved as as you would think and it's actually probably the next question i was going to ask you which was okay on one hand you've got this what are you terming catalytic capital on the other hand you're having the large kind of traditional you know uh purely economically driven funds that you just referenced like TPG and KKR and Bain raising impact oriented funds to sort of take take to, to to so how do you kind of report on that as as you know on the other side of the equation so if you got catalytic on one hand and sort of KKR on the other and then you know this kind of crop of of in, more independent investors of of the impact variety and now you're kind of getting it uh, you're getting traditional investors coming in. How, how do you think about that in terms of the broader market? Well, that's what that's kind of it's a little bit what I was referring to, which was you know you have you mentioned TPG, um, you know Rise has uh, just I think closed a five billion dollar you know climate fund. It's not specifically uh, broader in impact, but uh, these climate funds have crept up into that kind of you know multi multi billion dollar level, and then the sort of social infrastructure type funds are sort of in the billion dollar range now and whatnot. All of those was all of that. Would have, and you well know would have been sort of unheard of a few years ago to get funds of that nature. That's where you do have to, as we said, have this sort of accountability for what the impact thesis is. And, you know, people will debate that part of it. And that's sort of been the sort of running kind of story of the last year, you know, impact washing or greenwashing. I've always thought that that sort of takes care of itself. Yes, there's probably some marketing hype that has to get deflated, but that, in fact, if big private equity managers, including yourself, are going to market on an impact thesis, then they better be delivering that impact thesis if that's what the investors bought into. And that's what and that was the and that that was the impact alpha thesis. Your thesis being that the that those companies that have a good talent pipeline will actually be better performing companies. Um, that's your impact alpha thesis. And so if you don't deliver the talent pipeline, you're not going to get that alpha. Um, I- ironically, the impact industry wants to put itself out of a job, right? If if, if it does what it does well, which is prove that uh, great returns come from, from having an impact, then every uh, traditional investor will become an impact investor over time, right? You know, TPG rise or sorry, TPG just um, you know priced its its IPO, and so then in the course of that, they had to file an S one, and we looked at, at through that. They claim that this that their impact platform, which I think is something like thirteen or fourteen billion out of maybe one hundred and ninety or something, so it's not you know, but that that actually performed better than all of their you know quote unquote mainstream or commercial or standard ones. I mean, it was by a percent or two, but they they were not at least admitting any concession on the impact side. Um, now people might argue, you know, what, what, you know, what about the impact, like I say, but at least at the level of what they were calling impact, they were saying it was outperforming. And you know, do you view impact alpha's, uh, job to sort of hold, hold their feet to the fire from an impact perspective as well? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's, you know, that's sort of bread and butter of journalism. I mean, that's the, that's kind of the, uh, what do you say? You know, the dog, the, you know, the dog bites person story, right? Um, is, you know, is the, is the big impact, is the big private equity firm. Now, the, what I will say that it's important um, point, which we always make is these big firms can't just get away with claiming the impact of their impact funds. They have to take stock and accountability for the impact of all of their funds. Um, and that is the 
primary way to avoid the greenwashing is just to say, look, it's not just your, it's not just the thing that you said was going to do good. It's actually all the other stuff you're doing that you're that you're that you're not talking about so much. And so that is that's the main way we try to hold it, hold them accountable. And then there there's all sorts of you know framework uh, measurement and me- metrics and me- me- sorry measurement and management frameworks that um, they try to trot out in some pot. Folks try to like assign an actual dollar value to their impact, and you know we try to parse through that and see what's what's real about all that. But um, um, we do think it's important probably to measure, um, the, so there's at least something to talk about and ask them about and, and and hold up against other experts and other other methods. And we just try to you know give everything the smell test. Um, is there something more rigorous than the smell test coming down the pike? Well, the. W- the industry, as we've said, is a fire with <laughs> with measurement and management frameworks, and there's just been a sort of consolidation of, of a bunch and sort of a increased rigor. Um, I'm going to get my acronyms wrong, so I'm not even going to try. But um, but but essentially, the same body that sort of sets account you know um, accounting standards is is now you know at work with with a bunch of you know impact folks at, at their side, you know, setting sort of impact standards as well. So the whole thing is becoming much more regularized. Um, uh, you know, essentially a little bit boring, like you said, um, uh, and, um, will, you know, will, will, will be, you know, will be, you know, a sort of standard operating procedures within two or three years. Well, I, I mean, it's kind of an interesting question. I would say that, um, you know, impact man- impact capital managers wants to put itself out of business over time, right. By, by being successful as you described, um, what do you think impact alpha's role is as impact becomes more mainstream? We sort of see ourselves at at you know in our in our early you know era, which you know maybe we're just coming out of. We were sort of the um, water cooler, as you as it were, or the or the community of folks who were building this kind of social capital market in various ways, including all of these frameworks that we're talking about, and that they needed to talk to each other. They needed to understand what 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 we they each were doing, and folks in different domains were sort of unified around this kind of impact idea, even if they might work in education or, or, or housing or, 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 or sustainable timber or, 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 or climate. Um, and so we were the kind of glue of that. And we have this kind of identity that we cu- cooked up and people seemed to cotton to, which was um, that every, all these people are agents of impact. So at some level, the first job was to create the shared identity of agents of impact who all were kind of at least roughly kind of pointing in the same direction. There could be plenty of lively debates, as you said, Daniel, about sort of who calls what what and what counts and all that. But that's all part of the field building. Um, And now as that whole apparatus and ecosystem is increasingly being called on to not just be a a sort of niche marginal boutique part of the economy, but as you said, is becoming the actual economy, we think that that early adopter pioneer um, expertise and practical experience is increasingly important and valuable for all investors. So we're in a, a big push to take all that, you know, again, to a much more mainstream audience um, or put it this way, the mainstream audience is coming to us is how we see, see it. Yeah. Liesl Pritzker had a great analogy. She's like, this is like the uh, indie rock band in high school that suddenly plays Madison Square Garden, right? You're really, uh, you know, that that's, that's sort of what's happening right now to the impact uh, investing industry. So um, it's going to be very interesting to see how it kind of shakes out. Just in a sort of media world kind of thing, we've always thought that there was a value in the pure play, uh, you know, purpose-built um, impact 
media platform. Um, I was a Wall Street Journal reporter and, you know, there was an occasional, you know, feature story about, you know, these kind of um, crazy investors or these sort of, you know, worthy, you know, worthy type investors. And there was sort of every year or so they'd, you know, trot out the same feature story again and, and run it again. And we decided, you know, no, this is a real serious beat with a lot to cover, with legitimate debates to cover and with certainly plenty of deal flow and and, and fund managers and, and assets under management moving. And that, let's cover it like a serious beat in the expectation it would become one. And then lo and behold, it has. Well, uh, it's great to see the progress of Impact. It's funny, the Impact Alpha um, brand and network has grown. Um, it's, we, were, we were talking before the show, uh, I think you started in 2014. I think Impact Capital Managers had its first meeting uh, at HBS in 2016. So it, it definitely feels like uh, a, a world away and um, the world's definitely starting to pay attention to what we're doing, which is quite rewarding. Indeed, I, I remember some of those early meetings, and um, we've been tracking along. And it's great to to connect with you, and it's great to introduce our our listeners to your podcast, where a lot of these impact capital managers um, you, you engage can, them uh, and learn about their you know particular funds and, and theses, and have some fun with with you, Daniel. And it's great to introduce you to the Better Money, Better World uh, listener base, and uh, hope everyone subscribes to Impact Alpha. Terrific, um, impactalpha.com/slash/subscribe. <laughs> And, and we'll we'll try to keep David Bank and, and his team of journalists in business long after impact investing becomes mainstream. There you go. Well, it's great to be with you, Daniel. Thank you. That's going to do it for this Agents of Impact podcast. You can read more about Daniel Pianco, Achieve Partners, and the Impact Capital Managers at impactalpha.com. And be sure to subscribe to the Better Money, Better World podcast as well, wherever you listen. Big thanks to our producer, Isaac Silk and the whole team at Impact Alpha, investment news for a sustainable edge. I'm David Bank, editor and CEO, and I look forward to seeing you again soon.